Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The holiday season is here, and if you have a saddle hunter in your life, now is the perfect time to visit tetherednation.com. Hell, you might be the saddle hunter and just looking to buy yourself a a, a personal gift this year. Head over to tetherednation.com. They have all your saddle needs covered, whether you're looking for update your platform, whether you're looking for Lyman's belts, tethers. If you're looking for some new super lightweight sticks, they have their tethered one climbing stick, which is... A killer stick, the lightest in the industry, and super ridiculous strong. Or maybe you're looking to upgrade upgrade your saddle or get into a new saddle. They've got a bunch of different saddles to choose from, from last year's Mantis to the Phantom to the Menace. They have all your saddle needs covered. So be sure to head over to tetherednation.com and find some saddle gear under your tree this year. Temps are dropping and old man winter is just around the corner. Now is the perfect time to take advantage of the Skull Brew Coffee Company discount for this holiday season. Head over to SkullBrewCoffee.com. Use the promo code CYBER20 to get your savings. They've got three killer coffee roasts, a light roast, medium roast, and a dark roast. They also recently launched a new product, their Backcountry Single Serve Packs. For those of us who are looking for a killer coffee on the go, be sure to check out their swag as well. They all, they recently got some new t-shirts in and some thermal hoodies. So head over to SkullBrewCoffee.com, use the promo code CYBER20 at checkout, and save yourself some cash on some killer coffee. Looking to up your trail camera game this year? Then look no further than our buddies over at Exodus. Our buddies at Exodus are giving a 25% off discount across their entire website while inventory lasts. The one thing that will not be included, unfortunately, is the Exodus render cell camera. However, they will be extending the same 25% off offer when they have more inventory in stock in the not-so-distant future. So to lock in your savings, head over to ExodusOutdoorGear.com and use the code BF25 at checkout and save yourself some cash. Welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 206. Today, I'm joined by Bill Thompson of Spartan Forge, and we're talking machine learning and predicting deer movement. So stay tuned. 
What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you were doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Hope you had a killer Thanksgiving. I hope you had plenty of turkey, plenty of stuffing, mashed potatoes, or whatever it is that you, whatever it is that you like. Here at my house, we do the typical traditional stir turkey. I almost called it stirfy. Been a, been a long morning so far. Uh, turkey stuffing, mashed potatoes, all that kind of stuff. We did a we did a small kind of small holiday this year at, at, uh, at the Campbell household. It was just me my wife, my daughter. Uh, we weren't able to travel home. I think I mentioned this in the last podcast. It was like the entire in-laws section of the family had come down with the Rona. Um, so, you know, they weren't accepting visitors for, for obvious reasons. So we just kind of hung out here at the house, which wasn't, you know, terrible. I was able to get a couple extra days of hunting in, uh, which was good. Um, well, you know, maybe it was good. I'm not, I'm not sure. I didn't, I didn't kill anything. So whether it was good or not, I guess is debatable, but I got to spend some time in a tree, which is never, which is never a terrible thing. Um, of course, gun season came in here this past Saturday in Pennsylvania. So I hope all of you that were toting, toting some firearms out there had some luck. Uh, I actually ended up taking, you know, this, uh, I think this is the second year that it's come in on, on a Saturday. Um, it typically historically had always come in on Monday in the past two years, they've done Saturday and actually you were able to hunt Sunday. Uh, this past week as one of the three Sundays that the game commission uh, had gotten approved uh, to extend to, to, to those of us uh, Keystone, Keystone hunters. Um, So I'm sure a lot of folks took advantage of that. I'm digging the Sunday hunting. Unfortunately, I didn't really, uh, I don't think I've capitalized on any of the Sunday hunting. Um, When we had the archery Sunday hunting, I was still just getting back from my, my out of state trip there was a Sunday hunt, uh, for during bear season, if I'm not mistaken, and I wasn't bear hunting. Uh, so that didn't really apply to me. Um, and then this past weekend, um, you know, typically whenever gun or rifle season hits, um, I actually usually take that time, uh, and, and do a little, um, take a little break essentially. Cause I've been going hard since mid September. Um, and I don't, and I don't gun hunt and it's not that I have anything against it or anything like that. I just prefer to hunt with a bow. And, um, I will hunt during gun season with a bow, um, uh, but it's usually not the opening weekend. You know, that weekend is typically, you know, a reserve for the wife and the kiddo. You know, we typically get our Christmas tree and do all that kind of family stuff. So it's a little bit of a reset for me to give them some time, um, time back since I've been gone for, for a while and been, been busy for the past few months. So that's essentially what I've had going on here. Uh, nothing crazy in terms of updates for, for deer hunting. Uh, I think I might make one more trip. Um, it actually be in Pennsylvania to a completely new area. Going to be honest, I, I had some decent bucks on camera and just, it was during the time, the time frame that I, I was gone on my trip, um, uh, which is kind of a bummer. Um, and not sure what the outlook is looking like for, for late season. Now, I don't have a, I don't have really any great spots for late season that I have significant food sources or anything like that. Um, most of the places that I'm hunting to are pretty pressured, um, especially during gun season. Um, you know, so I, I don't know a couple of these new, a couple of these pieces are brand new to me this year. So I'm not sure what it's going to look like when gun season hits or after gun season hits. So I'll just kind of have to take a wait and see approach on that. So what I might end up doing is taking a little bit of a trip to a different area of Pennsylvania that I've been looking at that I wanted to check out that has some bigger wood settings, you know, just more room to roam. And go just do some freelance hunting in those places and see if I can't figure something out for late season at those places. And if nothing else, start gathering some intel for, for next year. So I'm not exactly thrown in the towel for this year, so to speak. Um, but I'm, I might be taking a little bit of a different approach than I've taken in, in years past. So that'll, 
we'll have to just kind of keep the update or I'll keep you guys updated on that. And that, you know, the outcome obviously remains to be seen there. So, but with that, I'm going to go ahead and just jump into today's podcast, have a cool show for you guys today. Uh, with Bill Thompson, um, been a while trying to have, trying to get Bill on for what seems like months. Uh, Bill is the gentleman who owns Spartan Forge. If you've not heard of Spartan Forge, you need to be sure to be checking that out. He's actually running a promo, uh, for the listeners of this show. Um, if you head over to Spartan Forge, I think AI is what the website is. He mentions it at the end of this web or at the end of the, uh, at the end of the podcast and you use the promotional code, uh, truth, I believe if I'm not mistaken, um, you will get a discount on signing up for the Spartan Forge app and, and the information that it, it that it contains. Uh, there's also a 14-day trial, uh, free trial period too that you can sign up to check out. Um, but what Spartan Forge is is really, you know, Bill. When we talk about his 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 history or his um, you know, what he does for a living and so forth. But in a nutshell, he works in intelligence gathering in the in the military. You know, essentially, you know, put in layman's terms, he goes out and finds bad guys uh, for. Um, you know, for teams to go out and extract, you know, so, um, for example, you know, he spent some time in the Middle East, of course, uh, putting packages together to provide intel to a SEAL team or Ranger team or whomever it is that's going in to extract a bad guy and puts together all that information. And a lot of this is done through a bunch of different, you know, data sources and stuff like that. And so Bill kind of was thinking like, hey, you know, if I can do this and, and, you know, and there's technology out here and there's the capability of finding, you know, bad guys using this type of approach, you know, I'm sure we could, I could probably apply this to deer hunting as well. And so that's what Spartan Forge really does. You know, it's a predictive platform that, you know, using a, a, a large data set and starting to discern and find patterns within those data sets to understand how deer are going to move within different regions relative to, you know, some of the maybe more concrete variables that we have, like, you know, wind, weather, or, you know, wind, temp, you know, those, those types of things and start to give you better odds to understand, you know, the, the higher movement days. And we go through and we kind of classify what higher movement is, lower movement or abnormal movement versus high movement, whatever the case is. We, we define some of those definitions in this that he uses in his app. So without further ado, you know, uh, Bill does a much better job of explaining what this is and how it works than I will. So we're just going to go ahead and cut to the chase and get to the discussion between Bill and I. But before I do that, I just want to say, as always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And if you've listened to this show for any length of time, well, I mean, if you listen to this show, you'll, you'll know that I'm a, I'm a deer nerd. And if you're listening to this show, I suspect that you are too. Um, but what you might not know, if you listen to some of the way earlier podcasts, I'm a little bit of a, a deer nerd slash data technology geek. I like bells. I like whistles. I like gadgets. Um, anything that can kind of help me get smarter in the deer woods, I dig. And so today's guest can help us do just that. I'm talking to Mr. Bill Thompson of Spartan Forge. What's going on, Bill? How are you? Hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you officially too, man. I know we've been trading. It feels like we've been trading messages on Instagram for like an eternity. <laughs> it's been to, a while. Yeah. I think we started this summer, right? I think so. Yeah, man. It was, uh, it's always the funny thing with podcasting is you would think doing a weekly show, like you would have all the time in the world to get all the people on that you want to get on all the time. But it's, you know, as you kind of get into like your content calendar and stuff like that, it's like you have things kind of planned out. And I was, when you and I were going back and forth, I was literally in the midst of doing like a, what felt like a 40 part series with Dan Enfault, <laughs> where we had so many episodes. And so to try to get anyone else in the middle of those was, was challenging. And then of course, once that wrapped up, we had hunting season hit 
right? And everyone's crazy and in the timber as much as they can possibly get out. And so now, even though we're still in the midst of hunting season, now is kind of the time where it feels like you can kind of get back on a regular schedule and start to get folks on. And now I kind of look and say, all right, now who, who haven't I been able to get on that I need to get on the show. And so I'm glad you reached out to me, man. Cause you've been a guy I've been wanting to get on. Great. Well, I appreciate you having me on excited to uh, do this tonight. Yeah, man. It's uh well, first, before we get started, man, we'll jump into all the, all the nuts and bolts of all the, of all the technology and all the goodies, which I'm excited to get to. But before we do that, if you wouldn't mind, just give the folks at home that are listening a little bit of background about you, what, where you're from, you know, what you, uh, what you do for a living. Yeah. So I grew up in North Dakota, uh, born and raised, I joined the military when I was 17. Um, I'm actually retiring this year. Uh, I retire, I think my last day in the army is the first of July. So, um, it'll be tw- almost 21 years. And, uh, yeah, so I, I get out of the military and, uh, I've been a bow hunter since or I don't know, 10 or 12 years, 15, wait, what year? Yeah. 12 years, I suppose I've been bow hunting. I used to do like leisure hunting as a child, mm-hmm. um, like go with, you know, uncles or with, uh, friends of the family and just, you know, rifle hunting, but it never really, I guess it didn't grab me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I thought it, like if I would, if I had knowing the whole story now, I thought it would, you know, maybe it would should have, but it didn't. And then I joined the military and, uh, it was actually uh, a good friend of mine who got me into bow hunting. And, uh, so yeah, I'm, I've been in the military, like I said, I'm retiring 21 years. And, uh, as I get out here, uh, you know, this business venture that we're talking about today is kind of what I've been focusing on in the military. I did, uh, until it's like, I guess a hodgepodge of things. I'm a, I'm a chief warrant officer in the army, which is, uh, for anybody who served, they'd kind of know that we're the technicians. Mm-hmm. You, you can kind of think about it as the people who are responsible for making sure that the units got the most, you know, try to be the most state of our art equipment that, you know, there's a user expert that it's understood. And then that capability gaps or uh, programmatic gaps for future technology, uh, you know, they're identified and then they're being met. That's kind of the role of the warrant officer in the, uh, in the, in the organization. Mm-hmm. They're usually guys who start out as like enlisted folks. Like myself, I went up to a staff sergeant and I became a warrant officer. And uh, yeah, now I'm a W-4. And uh, like I said, retiring, excited to do that. Can't wait. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I did I, I think I did the official count yesterday, but it's something like six or seven years of overseas time and wow. six deployments. Um, so uh, six combat deployments. So I'm ready for, uh, you know, the next stage of my life. Right. Hopefully I'll be, you know, doing this exclusively, but yeah, that's, that's me in a nutshell. Nice, man. Well, first and foremost, man, thank you. Uh, thank you for your service. I appreciate what you, uh, what you've given and what you've sacrificed. Um, my family is all, you know, ashamedly, maybe sometimes you know, I'm the only male in my family with my last name to not go to the, to the military. So that was kind of a, that was kind of a big deal. My dad had Marine recruiters and stuff at our house on Saturdays, whenever I was a junior and senior, you know, um, and my wrestling coach was, was, a uh, a Marine as well. And so going to school, they were, they were intending for me to go to, I think it was the Virginia, uh, Virginia military Institute. That's Cause they, great. Yeah. yeah they, Cause yeah. they had a wrestling program there. Um, oh, okay. but, but I ended up going to, uh, a different, uh, state school in, in Pennsylvania and didn't even wrestle at all. Just kind of like walked away. Oh no. Yeah. Just kind of walked away from all of it. I was a musician. So that was like, you know, it was, those two things were kind of at odds with that. And it was of the age where I was like, I was going to do pretty much the opposite of anything anyone asked me to do or tell me to do at that, at that point. Um, but much like you, man, it's like, I started hunting early too. 
Um, and I can kind of understand what you're talking about in terms of like, you know, I grew up gun hunting. It was very much a rite of passage where I grew up in Pennsylvania. It's PA is a big like heritage hunting sport. And we're, it's interesting you and I are doing this now because we're on like the, almost the eve as you and I are recording this of gun season, getting ready to kick off this coming Saturday after, after the holiday, after the Thanksgiving weekend. And that was just like, I mean, I remember having butterflies in my stomach like three days leading up to it, just like jonesing for it, you know? Um, but as I got older, there was just something about it. You know, I always liked hunting and being in the outdoors and stuff like that, but it wasn't until I picked up a bow that all of a sudden, like my hunting life changed at that moment, you know, so I can totally understand, but like, what for you was it whenever you picked up a bow, like knowing that you hunted previously and then all of a sudden you picked up a bow and it just became different. Like, what was it for you that was so that, that basically created the obsession? Yeah, it's it's kind of like a storm of like a mixture of things. I guess it kind of sounds cliche, but it is the truth. And I try to stick to the truth as much as possible. Uh, I got this kind of feeling. You know, I, I hate to be one of those guys who always talks about the military when he's in the military. I actually don't <laughs> like that about myself because um, it gets kind of annoying. I understand that. So uh, this will be a 30 second story. So anybody wants to skip forward, can you skip forward? But, but basically there there's a sense of uh, there's a sense of what's the word, uh, you, I feel fulfilled right when I deploy. And I know that the work that I've done led to a kinetic operation that puts bad guys in the ground. Like, I guess I'm a very results oriented person. So I don't like working in like an ether. Mm -hmm. I don't like abstract work. I like, I like, like, you know, maybe it's why I liked getting into engines when I was younger. It's like a problem with the engine figure out the engine, fix the engine, and then you're done and, and you feel you, you've completed the task and that's it. I don't like, you know, rolling the snowball in an organization and not knowing if my efforts really leading any, to anything. Mm -hmm. So in the military, it was like, okay, we're going after it. You know, at that time, you know, the cliche is Abu bad guy, mm -hmm. you know, it's, he's number 10 on our list. When we get Abu bad guy, it's a good day. So as an intelligence officer, my, my job was to, to put that puzzle together for the kinetic strike team or whoever the guys who were going in to actually do the operation. And a lot of times, especially early on, I was going with them on these operations. So putting that all together and then the intelligence package and making sure that we were operating in a safe manner and doing all of those things and then actually going, you know, going out, getting the guy, rolling him up, whether that means, you know, he's in the ground or he's in a cell. Mm -hmm. It was that the feeling that I got from that was unmatched and actually very early in my career i would worry like am i gonna ever be able to do anything else this right fulfilling so for me once i started bow hunting and it, and i got that first you know buck fever mm -hmm. with the adrenaline it's a very similar situation to that i'd feel like when i was on an objective and we're about i'm about to be you know sitting in a car watching some guys knock a door down and then going in and doing an operation and then me supporting that in the field, um, that it was a very similar, you know, it, all of this preparation, all of this work leading up to this moment of truth mm -hmm. and then, and then executing and completing the mission though. I get that with whitetail hunting and I especially get it now because my focus for about the past eight years has been exclusively public land. Right. So understanding the battlefield, isolating the variables, putting the plan together, making the puzzle pieces fit. And then, you know, watching that buck walk over a draw that 
you know, out of the 10,000 acres that he could be running through, you've narrowed it down to like this one piece. And then I get that same sense of meaning, that same sense of duty, that same flame in my chest that I get on an, during a military operation. And for me, it's been like a really good, it's helped me really with transition. Mm, I yeah. think I would be much more afraid of the post-military life if I wasn't doing this job right now, right? because it's allowed me to have this same still sense of meaning. So for anybody who wants to know, like, or if anybody, you know, has ever thought to themselves, I wonder what it would be like in combat. I can't speak as a door kicker, but I can speak as somebody who supports door kickers. And I've done it from, you know, every level of the, from tier one units, developmental group or seal team six, all the way to, um, uh, you know, a green infantry team. I've supported all of them. So, you know, being a part of that for anyone who wants to know what that's like, it's like, go learn public land and then put yourself on 145 inch deer or 150 inch deer where 95% of that hunting population is saying those deer don't exist on that land. Right. Like that for me, sorry, that's a really long answer. And it was more than 30 seconds, but, um, it, that's the truth. That's, you know, that's what, that's what it is. That's what it's about for me. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to continue to be doing this, um, as I transition out of the military. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, obviously different for me, you know, but it was still replacing that sense. I was a musician previously and it was the, it was the one thing whenever I left music, you know, we moved back from Orlando and, um, I was snowboarding cause I grew up snowboarding too, but snowboarding and skateboarding was just something that wasn't, that didn't do it for me anymore. And then, a a, a buddy of my father-in-law put a bow in my hand and put me in a stand one day. And it was, that was it. That was the switch. It was, it was all over from that point forward. And the reason being was just, it was the only moment that I could get that replicated being in front of 5,000 people playing a guitar. You know what I mean? It was kind of similar, right? You're, you're replicating a moment and a feeling and a sense of accomplishment. Very much the same for, you know, what I was kind of, what I was kind of looking for, but you're right, man. It's like, you know, especially with your background, it's like whenever you're kind of detailing out and kind of picking apart like a piece of public land or whatever, it's like your background is well suited for that. Cause you literally in your career are looking for a needle in a haystack in a lot of ways. Yeah, right. Exactly. In public land, there are big deer on public land in every state, I believe, you know, in Pennsylvania is one of those states where, you know, folks will say where well, there aren't good deer. I've got some trail camera data that would tell you otherwise, you know, you know what I mean? That I have found some good ones, but they are hard to find. And so it's that diligence. It's working a plan, doing your research, understanding, like you say, the variables that you're up against, whether it's pressure, whether it's going to have the right type of habitat and resources that those deer are going to need at these different times of the season and how those are going to rotate. And, you know, you just kind of have to stack all those things up. And the hard part is, is distilling all that information, right. And trying to get to like, this is when it's going to happen or the, this is the window it's going to happen. And what I think is interesting is you've taken all of that kind of knowledge and kind of have applied it to what you've been working on as you're getting ready to go into your post-military career, which I think is going to be super helpful. But before we jump right into that, I know you're using this approach for your season. Tell me how, how's your season been? Good. Season's been going well so far. Uh, frustrated as a, as of a little bit lately. Um, I got an early season buck in October, a 10 pointer in North Dakota that I was super happy about on public land. Uh, and then I came here, I've taken two doe since I've been, so I live in West Virginia right now. Mm, In fact, I think we're probably close to each other. I was thinking about it the other day. You're, you're in the Pittsburgh area. No, I I actually live, uh, just North of Philadelphia, but my home place is oh, okay. uh, is Bedford, Pennsylvania, which isn't far from West Virginia. I used to wrestle in uh, 
uh, I'd wrestle in what tournament was that? It was a um, uh, it was actually the nas- national uh, I think it was the national finals for the AA- AAUs. I think was in Morgantown, so I'd wrestle there. Yeah, so, yeah, so that's exactly where I am. Yeah, yeah, I'd I'm wrestle in Bridgeport, there. which is right by here. Okay, right by yeah, there. yeah, yeah. So um, for now, I forget my train of thought there. What was I getting to before I said that? Um, uh, you killed a good buck in South or in the Dakotas, yeah, two does North in West Dakota, Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I've taken two does here, both on a stock, which oh, is a lot nice. of fun. Um, and then I had a very good buck encounter. I, I don't even like talking about it. <laughs> I was, this was maybe on the, like the 13th or something like that, or maybe the 14th. And so I had a buck, or I, I should say, I'll tell the whole story and give it context. I'm sitting in a spot, you know, I have my bow up on like a hanger. I like to stand in the trees. I, I still use like a lone wolf, you know, climber or I'm sorry, uh, sticks and a, and a, um, and a lone wolf stand. I like to stand. I don't even bring a seat into the woods with me. I like to stand the whole time. I don't like to get too comfortable or get too like into my phone or anything like that. Right, so right. I focus on what's going on around, on around me and standing the whole time helps me do that. Right. So I'm standing, my bow's hanging up and a doe comes in and just starts eating, like just kind of meandering. And you wouldn't know that I've been a bow hunting, you know, for 10 years, you know, peak, peak rut at this time here. And I don't go to grab my bow just in case I just continue watching this doe. Then all of a sudden I start, she starts looking at me and kind of can pick me out. I think she's looking right at me, but I'm not moving. So she just kind of goes back to eating and just call it tolerate, tolerates my presence. Then all of a sudden I start hearing the grunting coming from the trees and just it, it, literally two seconds, this buck pops out. Really nice buck. Probably if if he if he had one inch of antlers, he had 140 inch antlers and a drop tan on his right side. Oh, jeez! And he comes out and just starts barking at this, just going at this doe, and she just kind of spins around. So I go to grab my bow, and as soon as I move my arm, she looks up at me. As soon as I move my arm, she looks at me. She sees me moving my arm to go for the bow and she takes off. The buck never sees me and just follows her. Right. So I didn't get a shot at him. Oh, man. And then uh, three days ago, I saw probably the largest six-pointer I've ever seen in my life. And I went on a stock after him. I was just kind of scouting because I'd gotten into a new area that I'd never seen before. And I wanted to kind of understand how the deer move. So I went on kind of an observational sit. I got up really high. I wasn't expecting to kill anything. It was just a bunch of ridge systems and cuts that were interacting and i wanted to see if the deer were down in this valley below which was very thick or if they were coming from the ridges up top so i was trying to look at everything and i saw this massive six pointer he was at least 130 inches he was a pope and young six pointer that's big deer three by yeah three by three and i was like oh man i gotta get after that deer and once again it was like (laughs) i was telling my buddy uh about this on the phone the other night but it reminded me of jurassic park you know when the uh <laughs> you know when the australian goes out after the raptors <clears throat> yeah and he and the raptor on is on the side and he says clever girl and then they maul him yeah same thing for me without the mauling <laughs> uh, i get within about 50 yards of this six point buck and like the only place for him to go is towards me and i'm like here it comes here it is i'm about to put a cap on the season and he starts to just move the other direction back up from where he came so i just took out my grunt tube and gave a couple of grunts as soon as i did that i looked to my right and saw like three does in a bush oh man and the does start blowing like i had just like shot one of their fawns right i mean blowing like i've never heard maybe it was because they were so close 
They were maybe like 11 yards or 12 yards away from me, but I could not see them. It, it was like a, it was like a dead bush where the leaves were still on it. So that it was like brown on brown, and I right. couldn't see them. And they started blowing at me like I had just killed their fawn or something. Like I was just, it was insane. And the buck saw it and just took off. Right. So uh, those have been my two experiences so far. Still plenty of season left. Yep. Uh, I've actually killed the biggest bucks. My, all of my large, very large deer, besides one, were killed during the secondary rut. Okay. I've always had an affinity for the secondary rut. I don't know why. It could be a coincidence thing. But all of my biggest deer have been killing, killed during the secondary rut, and that's coming up here for us. The peak of it is the 5th of December. Okay. So yeah. that week before then, I plan on, you know, getting out there and doing my diligence. So yeah. that's that's my so far. Yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned that uh, not grabbing your bow. It's almost like we're living a similar life because I had that exact I won't say exact, but a very, a very analogous, <laughs> uh, situation to what you had. I was literally in a tree. It's a spot. I've been kind of wait. I think I hunted it twice. It's kayak in access. I have a, there's three good deer in this area hitting this one primary scrape that I kind of found in the off season. I kind of prioritized it. And I knew if I just waited and bided my time and let it turn on, I could probably, I could kill a good deer there. Well, the bummer of it was I was leaving for Missouri on like the 31st. So I couldn't take off work on the 30th or 31st. And the biggest deer that I had on that scrape was hitting it the 30th and the 31st at like eight o'clock in the morning, like perfect timing. Right. But, but I couldn't get out to it. And so I was like, you know what? I'll just wait till I get back from Missouri. And I went to a second state. I was out for two weeks. And I was like, when I get back, I'll try to find some good weather days and I'll hit it. So I went this past weekend when I was off perfect wind. It was like a Northwest wind kind of giving him, giving him the wind kind of, but, but, it was a very risky win, put it that way. Right. And, uh, sitting there seven o'clock, like daybreak, you know, like shooting light. And I hear some rustling going on. I convinced myself that it was a squirrel, but I looked and I saw a deer kind of moving through this bush, similar to what you had with those does, but I couldn't see exactly what it was, but there was, I had a cell camera in this general area and there was a doe that was hitting this scrape often. And then there was also like a fork horn that I had an encounter with that had hit that scrape pretty often too. Like those two were like very, uh, frequent, um, visitors to that area. Right. And so I just had made the assumption, right. What's assumptions do makes an ass out of you and me. Right. So right. I, I made yeah. the assumption that it was going to be one of those two deer and I didn't pick up my bow. And then I saw a little flash of antler and I assumed it was at forky and I still didn't pick up oh. my bow. And oh, so no. by the time his head popped through, it was one of the three shooters that I had on there. And I, it was in my, it was in a saddle. And so he came out on my weak side and that was the only spot where I was bare, where I didn't have cover. So once he broke the brush, I was in trouble. And so I just didn't, I grabbed my bow and didn't move. And I expected him to make his way to the scrape that was in front of me. And if he did that, I was golden, but he ended up staying behind me. And that's exactly where my, win, I didn't have any wind. So my milkweed was just dropping straight to the ground. He got behind me. I had him at 14 yards. I could have shot him, but I just couldn't get turned. And then, uh, he ended up getting behind me and ended up just bugging out. And he was at five yards when he finally recognized something was up. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I was like, cause I hit one in Missouri that got, that I never, that didn't recover. Right. So that was a bummer. And then I screw the pooch on this one. I'm like, I was like, I, I don't know. I was like, man, I just keep making like all kinds of rookie mistakes this year. And it's driving me crazy. I was like, I don't know what the, no, don't know what the deal is, but the 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history designed by John Browning. The 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, 
Almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. It's, yeah, it's just one of those things where you, I don't know what it is because it seems to me like I have to learn some of these lessons one or two times and I don't know why. Yeah. Like everywhere else in my life, I'm very diligent, but it seems to, when it comes to hunting, there's like things I got to learn a couple of times and then I'll, I'll never stop doing them. But man, it really stinks when, you know, <laughs> your whole, you know, the whole season can hinge on, you know, 10 seconds of time. Oh, you know 100%. I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think part of for me is, is when I see a deer, I try to stay as calm as possible. Like, and so if I convince myself when I see something that it's not a for sure bet, right. That it's like, Oh, it's just a doe or whatever. Like I'm able to kind of manage my breathing and my buck fever, if you will. So I kind of do that consciously to try to keep myself from getting freaked out. So I try not to make any rash, quick decisions. I try to do everything kind of methodically, but what ends up happening in that case was is that I didn't take an active, mo- you know, uh, movement to get my bow immediately and then calm myself. So, cause usually grabbing the bow for me, like initiates that, uh, <laughs> fl- a fight or flight response almost, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's yep. about shit's about to get real, you know what I mean? Yep. It's about to go down yeah. if I have my bow in my hand. So then it becomes a little harder for me to, to maintain. Um, and so I try to stay as, as chill as I possibly can for as long as I can. That way, by the time it has to happen, I'm already in like kill mode and I'm not even thinking like it's just, it's just happening, you know? Yeah. Um, but the flip side of that is, is that I, is that I wait too long and that I, uh, and I screw myself, which is what happens. So, but man, let's, let's jump now into what you have going on post military. So Spartan Forge, I want to know, like, understand your background. So I get how you kind of how you got to, to this, to this product, to this idea based on what you do in your career currently. But aside from that, like, where did this idea come from? Like, how did you come up with like a, Hey, I should put this thing together that kind of aggregates all this data that can help me make or help others make better decisions when it comes to getting in the timber or hunting and trying to kill mature deer. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the short answer is I stole it from MIT. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I was working with, there's a organization called Lincoln Labs, which is uh, an offshoot of MIT. And they're kind of the government arm, I guess, is the best way to put it. But the the charge of that organization, and then there was another one that I was kind of adcon or part-time to called uh, DARPA. So these two organizations charge us to kind of, you know, come up with, you know, push technology to its limit. And I can give you like a quick little um, a summary, like, a program manager in one of those organizations, especially DARPA might say something like, I want to create a space shuttle, you know, and this is just an example, a hypothetical, but it's not something I don't believe they've done, but I want to create a space shuttle that, you know, can do, can go X and X speed, right? This, it can go this fast. Right. So the goal of the organization, as I understood it while I was there was not actually to create that space shuttle. That was the, that was the, that was the specified outcome, but what has to happen is there are all kinds of problems that have to be overcome in order to make that space shuttle do what they wanted it to do. And th- so that what the organization wants to do is take all of those spinoffs, say it had to come up, say they had to invent a new type of Teflon to, to, you know, make rear entry possible 
or exiting the Earth's atmosphere possible. And the Teflon that we had now didn't work. <clears throat> and then it also required a processor or something like that that we didn't have. So those two things would be invented and get put on this chassis, this, this piece of technology. And then even if they don't make it to the finish line on the product, they've still got you know two or three things that had to be invented by these other organizations in order to make it happen. So about 12 years ago, what I was on a project that was doing a very similar thing to what I'm doing with Spartan Forge right now is for terrorists. Mm. So it was aggregating. It was basically taking big data and, and other things, uh, classified stuff. It's not really important anyway, if, even if I could talk about it, that it would aggregate all of this data and then it would, and machine learning and artificial intelligence really in its, in it, you know, in its most nascent form or its purest form, I think, is really just high-level pattern recognition. It's the ability to take, you know, more data than any human could ever spend in any amount of time in their life, um, you know, doing analysis on, and then conducting analysis and finding meaningful patterns that answer the questions that the programmer is trying to answer on behalf of the user or the consumer. So we did this, and it was actually a successful program. Uh, and once again, like I, like I kind of talked before, it led to us putting some bad guys in the ground and identifying patterns and, and, and movement movements about about behavior, um, how they might you know be doing resupply runs, where they might be camping in the mountains in a particular year, you know how they might be doing their logistics, and and getting all of that from social media, putting it all together, and then saying, okay, I, we've figured something out that's going to allow our guys to go out and be safer when they're on an operation. So I was in Afghanistan, I believe, the first time I really started thinking about this. Uh, we were, I was part of um, a SIGINT team, I guess, at the time, a signals intelligence team on the side of a mountain. And we were gathering information for this program that I'm talking about right now. And it occurred to me, I just started whitetail hunting probably a couple of years earlier than this. I think this was probably before 2010, we'll put it that way. And I thought to myself, this is something that could be done for white-tailed deer hmm. and elk. And it just, you know, I need to be able to bring it. I just need to figure out what, what my repositories of information is. Because like with any machine learning company or any artificial intelligence company, the value is not really in the algorithms. The algorithms have been around in some cases in like 30 or 35 years. For, for 30 or 35 years, the value is really the data right. and the ability to go out and grab all of that data. And for me, that was the longest pull in the tent. It took me about... It took me about six or seven years of cold calling academics, biologists, and state wildlife organizations before I actually had enough data to uh, create a, a neural network that did prediction in any meaningful sense. And for me and, and, and the two guys that I work with, meaning, meaningful to us meant like about 60% of the time it needed to be accurate. Right. And when we first started, we all decided that if we couldn't get above 60%, and deer truly were just these like super individualistic types of animals that don't have, you know, patterns that are exploitable by either humans or the technology that we have right now as humans, then we weren't going to do it. But after the first like three or four years of collecting data and doing it and then throwing the algorithms at it, we were getting into like the fifties. Hmm. And then we knew that if we just got more and more disparate, more disparate data from other pieces of the U S you know, once we started getting up towards 60, then we knew we had something. And, uh, you know, what now we're north of 60% wow. and we're verging, I think, to the top. I think we're close to the top. 
I've been dealing with some pretty um, notable wildlife academics who have been using our information for studies and, uh, and other researchers. And, and they think we're getting near the top on prediction, at least prediction as it, re as it relates to movement. We've started a venture on, on pattern analysis as well, which is something I can get into later. Mm -hmm. And that, and that is kind of in its nascent form. But so, so that's kind of how I get from there to here is basically assisting the military in building these things to perform and, and conduct in, uh, in what we call intelligence preparation of the battlefield and then translating that for the hunter, right? Because when you think about it, um, it's all very similar, right? Mm -hmm. There's a specified target. There's information being out there in droves, whether it's social media analysis, it's insurance, car collision data analysis, it's white-tailed collar GPS data analysis. All these repositories of information out there are, are present and they can they can enable us to do pattern analysis. It's just the 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 work come becomes going out there and getting the data. Right. And, and and being able to commit that kind of time. So for me it was like, you know, 15 hours a week for many years. Right. I would just commit my time to trying to go out and getting this data because you know, I get, I, I had, a, I had a, the, the vision that this thing could work because I had seen it work in what I thought were very much more austere manners mm -hmm. or austere um, circumstances as it related to what we were doing with terrorists. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, if we can do this with terrorists and terrorists are, you know, giving this much information to us, there's no way that I shouldn't be able to do this with a white tailed deer when they're wearing a GPS collar. Right. 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 <laughs> right. Like, like all that's all there. Right. It's all there. Right. Exactly. So, um, it's interesting that when you talk about data, because I think when people think about just in as a frame of reference, when they think of like Google or Netflix or whatever, they'll think Google's value is in their user base, right? That so many people use it. It's like, no, Google's value is in the fact that they have more data than anyone in the planet could possibly have about any one person or any group of people, right? Yeah. And that is really where their value is. And that's how you get all the predictive stuff. Like when they serve you things in your feed. It's not by accident. Same thing with Netflix. Right. When they serve, they serve you the next, the next best thing for you to watch. It's not by accident. It's because they've been yep. following you and they understand what your behaviors are, what your patterns are, probably down to time of day when you're online, what your interests are at different times of day. I would imagine they could probably even, yep. probably even segment it, you know, that way as well. Um, yeah. So. So with that, you know, obviously you're collecting droves and droves of data to try to make these predictions about whitetails and how they're going to, you know, how they're going to behave and, and, and what they're going to potentially do. You know, you mentioned collared deer data. Um, talk to me a little bit about what kind of data you're getting from collared deer and then what other resources are you looking at for your data inputs? Are you also using any inputs from like biology observation and just some of like, I guess, more of like, you know, your rudimentary physical sciences, if you will, outside of the, the collared and more digital data gathering? Yeah. So, I, there's a couple pieces there. I guess first you said you wanted to know about the GPS callers, mm -hmm. the, the, that data. Um, so that's just basically working with academics. Academics have their own purposes for studies. You know, they want to see fawn recruitment. They want to see site selection. They want to see response to predators. These types of things that state wildlife organizations are sponsoring and the federal government sponsoring to understand the population because, you know, there's big money in, in gut for government, right, in selling licenses to kill deer. Right. Um, so they sponsor these studies. They collar these animals, send them out into the field for, you know, a year to six, I think six or eight years is the longest study I've got a hold of. 
and you know the the GPS collars are they don't they have a they have a time hack on them, so they have like a temporal uh, boundary of like every 15 minutes it takes a a snapshot of where that deer is on the earth, or sometimes it's a half hour. I've seen some studies where it's like once every six or at six or 12 hours. Hmm. So all of these, um, you know, GPS fixes, basically we go out there and get them and then we do analysis and there, you know, in the intelligence community, there's this saying where, you know, and then there's just classic case studies on this. Like for instance, the, uh, when we went into Iraq for weapons of mass destruction, uh, we only had one source of information and there, I, I can't remember the guy's name at this time, but it was basically one human intelligence reporter right and the human intelligence report said yes there's you know saddam has these chemicals these weapons of mass destruction and it's here and you know we started a whole war based on that guy's uh recommendation and kind of the the post-mortem on that was we cannot launch kinetic operations up based off of one piece of intelligence right right we, we need you know the you can google it this is all open source but you know the united states government the military has human intelligence signals intelligence we now have cyber Mm -hmm. right that falls under a couple of categories there's geoint there's ozint which is open source intelligence right so before we're going to put you know servicemen or women in harm's way or before we're going to spend blood and treasure on a military operation we need to be damn sure excuse me we need to be dang sure that uh, as many pieces of the intelligence puzzle suggest that the person that we're pursuing is the right person and we're doing it for the right reasons right mm -hmm. yep so that you know you could think of that as data modality and it's the same thing with spartan forge so we get this gps caller data and then we line that up with other pieces of data that we're finding out there so whether that's scraping social media or that's contacting insurance organizations uh there's inf there's meaningful information that we draw from there as well for instance if in september i get a bunch of data from the let's just say alabama dnr right and the, and we look at that and then we say, okay, when are the, when is the overlap on when does and bucks, right, are singled up and, you know, pushed off to somewhere? Like, when does that happen most? Mm -hmm. Suggesting that there's rutting activity or that a doe is willing to stand and mate for a buck, right? Right. When does that occur? So we get some dates based off of that. And then maybe I go to State Farm or I did, I should say, I go to State Farm or I go to USAA, to, U to insurance organizations that were able to pass me data. And then they tell me when their peak car collisions are, mm -hmm. right? So this is when in that section of Alabama, the most cars are hitting deer. <laughs> okay, so that's a second data point. And then I'll, then I'll go to um, a state wildlife um, organization that has done fawn measuring on harvest, from harvested does or from car, car collision does. Mm -hmm. And then they look at peak conception dates, right? Uh, and then I go to social media and I go to, you know, whatever place Alabama social media, um, deer hunting, bow hunting group. Mm -hmm. And then I look at the, when the most pictures were posted of guys killing big deer or gals killing big deer right now, I've got four sources of information. Yep. So then I look at that temporally and I say, when have the stars aligned to a, that? When is it, when is all of my data suggesting the first question you might ask yourself is when are deer moving the most or when are they on the hoof? Mm -hmm. Right. So then I line that up with peak conception dates. Then I look at that. Then I do that data modality work that we talked about before. And I say, based on when hunters are posting pictures of, you know, killing big bucks online, when you, when insurance, um, 
organizations are sending emails to their consumers saying, hey, look out in the third week of October because there's tons of deer movement, right? And then I have the, the fawn measuring and I have the GPS callers. All of that lines up. Now I've got a date, right? right? Now I've got, or a time series that I can say under these, under these conditions, these temperatures, this cl- cloud cover, this barometric pressure, this many storms happening before this peak of this rut in this area, or I should say of this peak breeding in this area, here's when deer seem to be moving the most. Right. Right. And, and then I, I, what I've done is I've overlaid four or five pieces of information. What my company's done is we've done that for every locality in the U.S. that has um, that white-tailed deer information mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and trying to present it to the user in a way that's understandable and, and ingestible and but at the same time doesn't overwhelm them with information or doesn't try to sell them something that's not possible or not in the in the art of possible right yeah i mean i think it's like when you think about it right it's deer hunters you know bow hunters maybe specifically it's we we look at so much information to try to make a decision right and it's oftentimes and i've talked to guys about this where it leads to almost you know a, a paralysis by analysis, right? You get yes. so much information where you're, you're, you're afraid to make a decision because um, you're afraid to be wrong, right? Because the human brain, like we just can't, we just can't take all those data points and all those inputs and distill them quickly and then feel confident about it because we still have emotion tied to that decision. We still have past experience tied to those decisions. We ego. have, we have ego, <laughs> probably the biggest one <laughs> right. Um, right. tied to those, you know, tied to that data. And then we also have, you know, what we've just seen being in a tree, which sometimes contradicts what the data says. Right. I, it's like, I've talked to um, the guys from MSU deer lab, right. Some great dudes down there. Yep. Um, yep. And we, and we've talked just about, you know, they're, they're very, um, scientific in their approach obviously they're biologists trained biologists and that's kind of how they approach things and so they know from a biological standpoint there are certain things that are false and certain things that are true right and then whenever you ask them to answer as a deer hunter and i've done this in a series i did with uh with them you know they'll say this is what the data say and this is what our studies find as a deer hunter i still go and do this you know what I mean? Knowing full well that like what he's doing as a deer hunter probably isn't aligned with what the data is telling him and what the studies have told him, but still he can't throw out that tied in deer knowledge that has been passed to us or that we've read or that we've consumed somewhere. So my, I'm curious to hear your answer to this, you know, knowing how data driven you are and analytical you are, and that's the the, the premise of kind of this, of, of your company, right? Is to kind of distill in for large pieces of, of data, multiple large pieces of data. Are there still times when you make a decision where it's just like you go on that, like bow hunter gut feeling where you're like, man, everything in the world is telling me this is wrong, but I just feel like I need to do X. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. They'll do it. <laughs> I um, love it. I, well, f- well, first off, I should say I was blessed and honored to be friends with Charlie Alzheimer. And if you know Charlie or his work, it, it revolved a lot around white-tailed deer in the moon. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the first book I ever read cover to cover with his was his White Tails in the Moon book. Mm-hmm. And I still hunt the dates no matter what based on, even though, even though I'm in the millions and millions and millions of deer data points, right? More, right. probably more, and I'm not boasting, I'm just 
I've probably looked at more bucks and how more how how bucks move than maybe any layperson ever. Right. When I look at GPS, right, collars. Yep. And I'm probably rivaling most researchers because I'm getting it from multiple institutions. Right. And anytime I have a question, I go to that data and I look at that data. I still will hunt Charlie's predictions for the prior for the the autumn equinox predictions that he has in his books. And I have them mapped out on my phone to like 2040. And there will never be a day that I'm not in the woods when that man said be in the woods because there's something about you. Can, first, you can't argue with his results. Right. But second, there's also something about tradition and honoring tradition and honoring the people who came before us because they all knew something that we didn't. Mm-hmm. And and just because we're sitting on a bunch of data and we've got some algorithms that are making predictions and stuff like that doesn't mean we get to dispatch with them. It right. doesn't mean that at all. What it means is we're putting more pieces of the puzzle together. It's why on my app where we have moon overhead and moon underfoot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, we know we're, we've just brought on Greg Litzinger. And if you know, Greg, Oh yeah, great. Actually, he and I were texting today. He was, he actually texted me. He was like, Hey, you're, you're talking to Bill today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I told him I had a podcast with you guys tonight and, uh, and he had mentioned that he knew you and, he goes by the moon. Yeah. Right. And you cannot argue with his results. Yep. And I, and I don't care to, because look at his wall. Yeah. Look at the deer that he puts on the wall. Now, are there a confluence of other things that he's doing? Probably. But I, I, I put that on there for people like him so that our app, a could be a one-stop shop, but then B, I, I refuse to dispatch with the past and the people who came before us because they all knew something that we didn't. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Greg's on our on our pro staff team now, and and that information and any other information he wants, to, you know, he says, hey, I think it'd be a good idea to throw this on there. I'll probably throw it on there as long as it's not taking up too much, you know, re- reality or I'm sorry, um, too much space on the um, on the uh, on the board. But uh, you know, moon underhead, moon underfoot, the running moon we put on there, and other things. And then, but for me, right, uh, and, and as far as uh you know, hunting and, and things that I do. Another thing when I, I, I do it all the time, I will look at a map and I'll say, I think I've looked at the data right on mature bucks and saddles, hmm. uh, especially on public lands. And they don't use them like people think they do. I would, I would, it's funny you say that. I want to hear your, I want to hear the rest you say, but I, I, yes, I agree. I, when I see a good looking saddle on public land, I am drawn to them. Mm-hmm. Now, now if it's a good look, now there are ways that saddles get better from an analysis standpoint, when they're around bedding mm-hmm. or the deer are not pressured or there are primary, there's a primary scrape mm-hmm. or, or beds are coming together with a saddle yeah. fine. But when I see a nice saddle somewhere, especially in hill country and I've got no reasons, I still gravitate towards yeah. them. I still sit them. I don't know. And I'll see, you know, two, three-year-old bucks. I'll see some does. I might see a bear, some fox, coyote, or whatever, anything like that. I still love sitting them. I still do it. I still, but, you know, I, I get it probably because when I first really got serious, I read this book called Hill Country Bucks, I think it was called, mm-hmm. or, or Mapping Hill Country mapping Bucks. White, or mapping Whitetails, I think, probably. Mapping Whitetails, that's yep. what it was called, by Brad Hearn. Brad Herndon, yep. I think was his yep. name. And it's a good book. It's like, I, I, it's I've, great. I, I've read it and it, it really helps kind of understand and outline and define. I've always said, even if, if you're brand new and you're just really learning to read topo for whitetails, 
great book. If you're someone who understands and has been reading Topo for a while, it's still a good book in my opinion because it will it will bring things to light that you've probably overlooked in the past. And that yep. was I read it I think like a year ago. It was a great book. Yeah, and and, and that I gravitated towards that book and being a military guy who understood maps really well and how people use terrain, that all clicked for me. And I hunted saddles hard. I mean, but once again, saddles are contexts where saddles work. And people could say, well, I've killed three big deer over saddles. That's great. Mm -hmm. I've looked at like 200 trophy class bucks GPS analysis for many, many years. If they use them, they use them at night Mm -hmm. and they use them rarely. Yeah. And so that, you know. But I still do it. Yeah, I still go and hunt them. I, like, right? I can't. I, I can't not. Ha- look. I can't not hang a camera in it or something like that. You know right. what I've found, exactly. and this has just been something I've learned. Um, my buddy Chad Sylvester he owns Exodus Trail Cameras. I hunt some big woods with him. Um, you know, very large tract of unbroken. You know, I guess contiguous uh, pieces of land. Right, about seventy thousand ish, sixty thousand, eighty thousand acres, something like that. And what I've found, at least in looking at his trail camera data and hunting this particular area. Is that the, I'm trying to figure out how to how to say it? Some of the very very subtle saddles I've seen activity in, right? To yeah. where it's almost undefinable unless you walk to it, unless you're physically boots on the ground. The ones that you could really yep. see from a topo haven't had as much success. What I found in this particular area is very steep too. Um, like the ridges aren't so much ridges as they are more probably spinebacks than they are ridges. Um, yep. What I, what we've found is they're using a lot more of bench systems coming together on those ridge systems, how the bench systems kind of start to run together. Like that's yep, what we found absolutely. actually that they use more more often uh, than they will than they will a saddle. But still, the one saddle that I found that has worked really well for me that I killed a good deer out of, and year over year, if I hunted this spot, I'd I'd have encounters. I actually usually send a buddy of mine to this spot because I don't hunt it every year. Um, piece of public, but it's a saddle in between two doe bedding areas. And if mm-hmm. you're there between the sixth through like the 10th, it is yep. fire every year, yep. you know, yep. but yep. it's conveniently positioned between do, two, two doe bedding areas on either side of it. And so bucks are just constantly cruising that saddle all day, getting back and forth between doe bedding areas, you know, yep. and, and it's, and it's dynamite. But it's interesting that you say that. Cause I immediately, as soon as you said, it, I was like, Oh my God, I was like, I'm glad he has data that actually supports this because I thought I was going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, so there are a couple of things about that data, and you're absolutely you're absolutely right. When there are reasons for them to travel them, they will. Mm-hmm. But there, and I should this is a kind of a primer. I should start saying more often is I only know what the data says. I don't know the why. Right. Like I can think about the whys, and one of the whys that I've thought about this a lot for is when you start talking about 140, 150, 160, 180 inch class deer. They got that way by not acting like the rest of the deer. Right. Yep. So I, I, what I think, this is my own just thought. It's not correct. It's probably not correct, but it's what I think is when they start smelling or realizing or knowing that deer are using this area all of the time, they immediately stop using it. Draw, draws predators. Just, I mean, if you, if you took right. us out of the equation, right. right. And just right. looked at it just from the animal kingdom perspective, like, you know, right. if you've, if you hang a trail camera somewhere and you have a bunch of deer hitting a trail camera, it's not going to be too long until you probably have a have a coyote come through that same area, right? So yep. it, it it makes total sense. And then when you hit hunting season, those areas, you know, I um, a buddy of mine, I gave it. He asked me some question. He was writing an article for this uh, publication, and I gave him a quote. And he was asking me about hunting pressured public land during the rut. And what my response was 
was when I look at a topo map and I'm figuring out where I'm going on public during the rut, I take any really identifiable topography feature. So saddles, really clear benches, anything anyone could see from a map and not put boots on the ground. I immediately mark those places off my list because those are going to be the exact spots that other people are going to also identify and gravitate toward. And so they just become non-factors for me, which then I start looking at what are those secondary terrain features and what are those edges that are created by breaks and habitat or whatever that I could potentially start using. Yeah. That, that speaks to your point before, right? Mm. Um, it's, it's a, it's a mixture of things that you have to put together and understand. But then the other thing that people don't conceptualize as much as they should is that they're also competing against other hunters. Yep. So when they understand what other hunters are doing, that will help them. Right. So like one of my favorite things to do and another guy, I'm dropping names now, but another guy we just, uh, signed on to for our pro staff, Garrett Prawl Mm, is like the DIY sportsman. Yep. My favorite place to sit on on rifle opener is an escape route for uh, bucks and does when they are trying to get out of a public la- piece of public land that I know where there's lots of pressure. Mm-hmm. It's basically like where a ridge system comes together, and then there's a small valley, and then there's like one out. Right. That's an area where I like to sit, and I'll see between 16 and 30 deer in a day, and that's but any other day of the year, any other time I would sit there, I'm simply not going to see the deer. Yeah. It, it, it's only going to happen on that one day when people are just nailing the woods and they're in there at like six 30 and they're out by nine 30. Yeah. Cause my biggest, the biggest jump in movement usually happens around like 10 AM, yep. which is just simply everyone leaving the woods <laughs> right. and scaring the hell out of all of the deer in that area. Yeah. Right. And then that's, you know, then I'll just see them all just flying through this area and, and that's how my my second biggest public land buck was taken in that way and i had to yell at him to get him to stop oh wow like he was just moving along i was like and i was like hey stop hold up he looked up and then i shot him yeah exactly right Um, and and i still bow hunt that i still bow hunt that area there's no reason to take a rifle in there right because a lot of times i could take two or three doe as well when it's allowed they've tightened up some of the regulations now so it's only one buck one doe a day but it used to be I used to be able to take two doe out of there along with my buck oh, wow. for the day because they'd just be shooting out of there all day long. That's doing work there, man. <laughs> yeah, a couple deer yeah. in one day. It's a lot of. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to get into you know um, the differences. I, I guess let me just put it this way: you know what the difference is between what your platform does and what some other suggested predictive platforms platforms do because. I've looked at some of those other platforms and I feel like, you know, in, in the past, I'm sure other people have too. And I feel like they're going, those platforms specifically aren't harnessing quite the same type or amount of data and are using more human input and information into it than, than it is true data. Um, and not saying that that's, you know, bad or whatever the, the people who I'm not going to n- mention the name, but the people who run it are very successful as, as hunters. Um, but it's still not uh, it's still not unbiased. And what I like right. about your system and what you have going on is that it, it is truly unbiased. It is just telling you purely what the data what the data is doing because I think what the trap that that the other program falls into to a degree is that the folks who create it, they have very deep experiences from one area of the country, which aren't necessarily applicable to what I will see in Pennsylvania. In a high yeah, pressure. Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head. Right. I mean, so you basically said everything I would say. I just did your 
sales pitch for yeah. you. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we need to bring you on here after. Uh, but yeah, so my, my thing is I want to remove the human from the OODA loop, right? So like the observe, orient, um, uh, decide and act loop, right? Mm-hmm. So I want human out, out of that because any human interference in a system is going to, is a factor. It's, it's another, it's another thing that needs to be accounted for and adjusted for. And it's very hard to observe or, um, and then account for human interaction in a system because we don't know why we do things right. Right. We're, you know, we, we are ruled by committee. You know, a lot of people say, well, I, you know, I know what I'm doing. It's like, no, you don't know why you do half the things that you do. Right. You know, a lot of guys want to start going to the gym or stop eating and they don't do that. They just, you know, go back, do whatever the same thing they've always been doing. So when we introduce humans into those, you're inherently flying a system when you introduce a human into it. So my goal with our system has been to abstract away and remove as much human as possible. Uh, a, A contact point on there would be on the GPS studies, we don't use deer data from three days after the buck's been captured because mm, we don't want, we don't, we want that buck to go back to the way that he was before he was caught and not, you know, acting like he has just been beaten up right? and, and, and really avoiding areas. We want him to kind of go, I think actually it's five days. We go, you don't use it for five days. So I guess the, the big first and biggest, um, you know, I guess separation or how we are different is this isn't a Bill Thompson model. Mm-hmm. You know, I've killed some good deer and I, I, I routinely put some good deer on the, on the ground and, and in the freezer. I am not going to, I have not spent, you know, in order to see what millions and millions of data points of deer movement, I would have to live to be, you know, four or 500 years old to see as much deer as I've seen on a computer right. from a movement perspective. And you, you were absolutely right. And, and and the science is crystal clear on this deer in certain areas, you know, are subclassed differently because they truly act like different animals. Mm-hmm. The, and I guess the, not only in areas like what a deer in Minnesota will do or a deer in Wisconsin or a deer in Texas and Arkansas will do. They're totally different as it relates to how they move in certain types of weather and, and it's repeatable, it's demonstrable and you can see it. And then on top of that, across age classes, hmm. what a five-year-old buck or doe matriarch doe will do and what a two-year-old buck will do are, is not the same at all. They're not even the same animal. It's not even, I, it, it's, it's gotten to the point now where I'm like, you're not hunting the same animal. If you are want to get on public land and you want to kill a 150-inch deer because they're out there, you have to get used to not seeing deer for 15 sits yep. or 16 sits or 17 sits. Get used to it because they are not acting like the rest of the deer. Yeah. They're not doing what the rest of the deer are doing. They're not comporting themselves in a way that the rest of the deer are doing. And you might as well be hunt. It, 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 I would equate it with trying to, you know, uh, um, you know, rolling in jujitsu. I don't know if you've ever done like jujitsu, but rolling in jujitsu with like, Hoist Gracie versus the normal dude, right? right? The normal like, guys yes, just showed up humans. to the just showed up to the right. MMA gym, right? Right. They're both humans. They both have strength constrictions. There are both things about them that are unique. But <clears throat> you you might as well not even try with this one, and you're going to be able to run into a hundred guys who are like this guy, and, and they're all going to be the same. But this one is not like the rest of them, right? In, in any way, shape, or form. 
So <clears throat> we account for that. And we're actually going to be uh, in the next, we're in the probably the next six months or so, we will be t- dropping a mature buck model. That's awesome. Love it. And, but, but what is going to be, I sh- what I, how I should say this is 60% of the time deer are the same. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's that other 40% that is, that separates them. But, but it's almost as if the, the older or mature bucks have, have learned how to deal with their instincts because on days where does and two-year-olds and three-year-old bucks move a lot, seven-year-old bucks do it too, but they do it in a much smaller area. So whereas a two and a half year old deer might have usually their ellipse shaped like a home range of a deer, Mm -hmm. right? Not core home range. They're usually elliptical shaped. That buck on a high movement day, like a two and a half year old buck will be all over that ellipse. Right. He'll be moving everywhere and there are reasons for it. And, and we know some of those reasons because we can turn them on and off in the, in the machine. And then we can look at how it changes the prediction. But then with that six year old buck, right. His home range is a little smaller, but then his core range is smaller yet. And then inside that core range though, he'll still be moving a lot all day. Right but he's just doing it inside of 150 yards. Right. Right. So he's getting up, he's eating, he's pooping, and then he's moving to a different bed. And then, you know, on a high movement day, he might do that 15 or 20 times. Right. And and I'm now, suspecting like a high movement day could be a bunch of different reasons too. A high movement day could be absolutely. that he's getting a lot of wind shifting. So he's, he's wind Precisely. shifting his bed around the, around the, cause he might just move on the edge or on the, on the point of this ridge that he's set up for a southwest wind, but the wind switches. So then he wind shifts to the other side of the ridge. But he's still in that ridge. He's not moved very far, but he's moving constantly to have the wind to his advantage. Yep, absolutely. And then another one that a lot of people don't, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll give a little tidbit of information here for your listeners. South of a Mason Dixon, rising or falling humidity has a lot to do with a buck changing his bed. And I have no idea why. Hmm. That's interesting. But when humidity is up, I see movement. Wow. Like, like as it changes in Mississippi, Arkansas, and Texas, um, and South Carolina, humidity has a lot to do with movement. That's crazy. Now, you know, if you talk to the MSU guys, you might want to ask them why, right? <laughs> Cause I don't know why, but humidity gets a vote now up in the North, uh, even where we are, um, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, it doesn't affect it as much. There's some variance, but not a ton. But it's, it's, it gets as much of a vote down south as temperature does. Really? I think it's something – don't quote me. Maybe I shouldn't say a number. I want to say it's something on the order of like 30% of the time or something like wow. that. So it's almost as large because people say I hunt cold fronts. Cold fronts are fine, but they only get you there about 30% of the time. There are cold fronts that deer sit out. And it has to do with what leads up to that cold front. If there have been favorable feeding days – if there have been 12 favorable feeding days leading up to a cold front, a trophy class buck has no idea, has no reason to get off of his belly because of one cold he's front full. that lasts for He's full and content. Right. Good to go. Right, exactly. And, but up north, right, <clears throat> there um, are other circumstances that will make them get on their belly for a small feeding window before a small t- drop or rise in barometric pressure, especially when it's coupled with things like cloud cover. Mm-hmm. That whereas that gets almost no vote in South Carolina, right? But it gets a ton of vote in Minnesota, 
and then some vote on the East Coast. Wow. So that kind of speaks to your earlier point. There is not, you know, the, there's not one ring to rule them all. There's not one model, <laughs> right? We have to we have to bias the models based on the 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 proximity of the nearest GPS data that we have. Right. So if I'm so if I like uh, for instance, if I have Maine data and Connecticut data, which I have, and I am trying to do protection for somebody in New York State, that data has more weight than my Minnesota data has. <clears throat> for the movement for those deer over there. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't be any other way. Why would you do it any other way? Right. So when you're trying to develop a model, there's a couple of things. And, and there's actually, I'm not even speaking about one deer company right now. And I think I know who you're talking about, but there's actually a few prediction models out there. <clears throat> there's not one model that can predict against any of them. Cause I've done, when I was setting all of this up, I did this work and I would use these models that these other guys had. And some of them were worse than a, than a coin flip or hmm. if you had like a three-sided die mm -hmm. and you were to roll it, statistically, you'd be better off using the die trying to figure out what days <laughs> they're actually doing more that's than awesome. you would be to use these apps that's because great. it just doesn't translate. Right. But And that's not naysaying. Once again, there's probably goodness somewhere in there. there there's, good in, there's good intent there. The, the approach and the execution is flawed. Yes, yes. But the, but the other thing is, um, the model has to regionalize and, it, it, and on top of that is there's a couple of things that the data, like for instance, I won't do anything with this model or for this company <clears throat> it, from a, from a user experience or a user interaction standpoint, if the data doesn't bear it out, for instance, I was, <clears throat> I'm dealing with a company where sooner or later we'll go public about this, but we're, we're, we're dealing with a company that's, you know, invested in our future and, and wants to see this thing come to light in a much bigger and better way and had suggestions early on in the season or earlier on about, you know, have you guys thought about doing like an hourly model instead of just like for this day, deer are going to move. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the reason I, so we're probably going to go to a morning and afternoon model because I do see variance in morning and afternoon, right. but not a ton but not a ton. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't see it across hours. And there's actually studies that support this, but also the GPS data supports it. Deer don't have fine-tuned instincts when it comes to changes in pressure. They don't move a lot in one hour and then decide to bed down the next hour. Then, oop, I'm back up now and I'm moving a ton for the next hour. It's like hour-by-hour hour prediction doesn't work. Right. It, 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 it's, it's not a thing that you you think you could think about it from an instinctual standpoint or as a human standpoint, if you are, if you are frustrated or if you have an emotion that's consuming you, right, you become like a cyclops. That is your emotion. It doesn't vary by hour, right? You don't get really frustrated for an hour. And then magically, if you haven't solved the problem or done whatever, get unfrustrated, right? Deer move off of instinct and the instinct and what the data bears out is it's a daily thing. Right. It's like whatever happens during the night when they're out feeding, doing their thing, they're they're at a at an instinctual level. And again, I'm 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 guessing. Right. I think but what the data bears out is they don't move hourly, they move daily. If they're if they're going to be moving a lot, um, statistically at 7 a.m., they're going to be moving a lot for 9 a.m. as well. Right. Now they're not going to be moving as much at 9 a.m. as they are at 7 a.m., but they're still going to be moving more at 9 a.m. than they would on any other 9 a.m time series 
on any other day. Does that make sense? No, it totally makes and sense. And I get in other ways. I get this the, daily. Yeah. And I get the idea of why not doing it hourly. And it, that makes sense to me too, because I think, I think when you're dealing with such large data sets, you are, um, I'm trying to figure out how the best way to say it. If you start looking too, and when I say too deeply, it's probably the wrong word because you're looking very deeply at the data, but you will start to introduce things that are, um, uh, not natural or isolated incidents that of variables that are isolated incidents, right. That do not follow that aren't part of the norm, the outliers, you start to introduce outliers, right? So for example, right. And so what I'm kind of thinking of is if you're looking to see how a mature buck is going to move just in general, right. You want to know what weather conditions or factors are going to make him be more active on a given day. If you're looking at it hourly, it could be that a coyote bumped him from his bed and then he had to continually move and he wasn't where he wanted to be. So now he didn't have the wind in his favor. So now he continually moved and shifted because the wind was not what he needed it to be or whatever the case is, right? Like that one, um, uh, that one isolated kind of outlier variable now kind of skewed that entire data set for that particular animal, right? And so if you look at that, then across a bunch of animals, as you are doing, those outliers, you begin to then have more of them and you begin to introduce even more, you know, outlier bias to how these deer are going to potentially move on a day-to-day basis. So it totally makes sense to me why you wouldn't do it, why you wouldn't want to do it hourly. Um, I think that's where your human experience, as we were talking about before, we don't throw out the old because of the new, we try to figure out what we could learn from the past and implement those things and be smarter by using some data and technology. It's like, so then at that point, Use some of your experiences of hunting this particular piece. What do you know about this particular animal? Have you been, do you have trail camera data that also then starts to give you more specific definitive information about that one isolated deer, right? And so then at that point, you can start to make larger or more finite kind of moves or much more fine tuned moves based on your information about that one animal, right? And so it's not about removing the hunter's intuition. It's about supporting the hunter's intuition to make better decisions with what they know to be true as well. Yep. Absolutely. And, and reinforcing <clears throat> either helping them dispatch with false presuppositions yeah. that maybe are putting them in the, in a, in a bad place or reinforcing their good suppositions that are helping them out. Right. Because I'm sure somebody's grandpa somewhere has said, you know, in Alabama, when the humidity is moving, you need to get out there. And oh, I guarantee you, one of those episodes. I guarantee yeah. you, that grandpa is out there. Yep. Right. And everyone is probably giving him a hard time and said your grandpa's crazy or whatever. Right. At deer camp, someone's giving this dude a hard time. Meanwhile, you know, he he figured it out. He knew. Yeah. Right. There's something people know things. Right. We we are in our essence pattern detection systems, just like in a neural network. That's why we are. You know, we are a neural network. We detect pattern visually just like a computer does, but also, you know, abstractly, just like a computer does now. Right. And, um, and that's why we, you know, I'm always trying to integrate and update these systems to make them more efficient and just give people access to that grandpa everywhere. Mm -hmm. So like for my situation where I didn't grow up with anyone in my family who hunted really, um, some 16, 18, 25 year old who wants to get into hunting can access our, you know, this wealth of, and this, and this, and this wealth of knowledge and and get some good data from it to get them started because our system, as I said earlier, it's still wrong 40% of the time. Right. Right. And that's a significant amount of time. Right. I'm just trying to help them get, you know, so that if they're not ruining their best spot 
70% of the time, maybe they're only, you know, messing it up 30% of the time now or 40% of the time. Right. And that might be enough to get that buck in there to help them out or to get that dough in there to put meat on the table for their family. Yep. Whatever it might be. We're, as I said earlier, I'm trying to isolate as many variables as possible and only present them with data that correlates. In other words, data that, that we can see, in other words, here's an easy point of contact or an easy way to understand why we decided to use what variables we did. If the weather variable didn't impact the amount of movement or the pattern that the deer were in, we didn't use it. Right. So when we're programming the model, we look and we first pull the model and it's actually just as complicated as a, of a neural network. We use to tag our data as we do to make inferences about our data. That is to say, did moon phase, for instance, impact deer movement? Yes or no? The system reports and then we make a decision. Okay, yes, it seems to impact deer movement in this way. So we're going to include it in that way as we're training our model and as we're updating the model and as we're doing predictions for the consumer. Did relative humidity, well, it didn't seem to in this data, this data, or this data. <coughs> All right, well, then we're not going to include that for that piece of data up there because it didn't seem to affect the deer from a movement standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and our movement at predictions are getting very, very, very good. Um, one point of contact, we had a deer biologist who we were working with, who we are working with, and he had contacted me and said, uh, you know, I'm excited about your model, but uh, I got to tell you, this weekend in the deer woods, he's like, in all my years, this weekend in the deer woods is going to be on fire. And your prediction system is saying low, 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 like every day of this weekend. Right. And I was like, oh man, this sucks. <laughs> this is not going to be good. Right. <laughs> and, um, I got a text from him on that Monday saying, I saw nothing all weekend. And only one guy in our hunting parties had reported one good one movement on one good night and like out of everybody when we did the numbers it was something like we were right 78 or 80 percent of the time based on all the observation data that we'd gotten from people right we were up in like the 80th percentile (laughs) and he was flabbergasted Hmm. like that was that was the proof in the pudding that we needed like you know you've got this it was essentially a hunting party of state wildlife managers and deer biologists. Right. So, I mean, you, this is the group of people who you want reporting. They know these deer. They've tagged these deer. They manage these forests. Yep. They've named these deer. They've interacted with all of them. They've taken their antler measurements since they were, you know, fawns. Yep. Or, I'm sorry, one, one and a half year old bucks growing up. They And they, and they go in there to cull this population, right? to uh make room for new deer coming out so this is this is like you know shooting fish in the barrel supposedly right right and they're all saying your stuff's wrong you're gonna be wrong this weekend and and it ended up that we were right most of that time for that weekend and then instantly we got an email saying hey all of these guys want access to the model (laughs) so it was great for us it was a great like proof in the you know the proofs in the pudding like and that's how we it's, it's the only way we want to be measured and it's how we ought to be measured. Right. Is are we, are we producing for people and are they seeing, right? Because you can have all of the data and you can have all of the inferences and you can have the most high tech models, but if it's not translating for people, right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And, 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 and so we were, we, our first relationship, I guess, <clears throat> from a pro staff standpoint was with Garrett Prawl mm-hmm. and he was running cameras and he is very diligent about how he, you know, sees deer when where recruiting all of these things or i'm sorry um scouting all of these things and um 
he had even gotten back to me and said he was very impressed with when he lines up daytime buck sightings <clears throat> or early deer sightings, and then he draws the statistics from it. He gets the, the numbers from it. Then he compares it to what the predictions were. It's right in there at about 67%. Hmm. Wow. So, I mean, it, it's, it's right there. Yeah. And we started in on pattern. And I will say pattern's a little more nascent than movement is. Mm -hmm. The app that we're, we're actually going to be releasing the app on Wednesday, by the oh, way, nice. I should, I should, I should Wait, what, that. what date is that? Uh, just cause this will probably come out after that happens. I just want to make sure we have the, have the 25th. What is it? The 25th, the 25th, 25th of yeah, November. We're trying to get it out there for most people. I'm sorry. What did you say? 25th of November. So everyone out there listening, by the time you hear this, it'll be live and available. Yeah. And, and we'll do a, we'll do a 25% off discount for your listeners. Okay. Awesome. So if they do, if it's all right with you, yeah. you can cut this out if it's not, but if it's all right with you, yeah. they can put the word truth in the uh, checkout and we'll give them 25% off. Perfect. Um, and it is a beta. So we're still test, you know, this is still not a full release. <clears throat> it's for people to use it and say what they like and what they don't like. I think they'll be very impressed with the movement portion, the pattern portion and about 60% of the United States so far from our beta team that has been doing the testing has been very good. There are some areas where the pattern doesn't work perfectly, but we're fixing that. We're refining it. Um, pattern is to say, um, say, you know, a buck works a particular scrape line or, you know, does show up to a particular field and they always come in like from this direction and they usually come in at this time, <clears throat> right? Traditionally, a, a hunter can say, I've patterned these deer. Right. Well, they, they get patterned as you alluded to before, based on weather and environmental variables like wind and temperature and cog cover and things like that, because it allows them to send check areas before they go in to do their, whatever they want to do in that area. So we've gotten the model to recognize pattern and it does very well at recognizing patterns around the U S but just like we said before, it's regional. So I think areas where we really don't have a ton of data, it still hasn't nailed pattern down, mm -hmm. but we look to have it nailed down by next year when we do the full scale model or I'm sorry, the full scale app release, okay. like actually in the app store right now, people will be met. Um, they can access the app on Wednesday through our website at www.spartanforge.ai. Mm -hmm. Then in the top right corner, it's just like log in or register. They can log in and register or get access to the app. It, it is a beta. Like I said, we're still testing it, but on the movement pattern prediction, the every, everything that we, in the military, we call it a common operating picture, but it's basically <clears throat> when you combine that with, you know, whatever mapping service you use, you're going to be able to have everything you need when you go blind into the woods to either do scouting or hunting in a, on a new public piece, or you didn't get to scout in the off season, but you're going to have everything that near there you need. You'll know the historical historics for the area. Um, you'll know the weather variables for the area. You'll know the last two weeks, you'll know the primary winds. <clears throat> you'll have a wind plot, a wind rose diagram for the area. <laughs> you're going to have your, uh, the running moon, the peak, uh, the peak mating dates, the secondary mating date, uh, I'm sorry, the secondary peak rut, uh, for every place in the U S along with our machine, uh, intelligence predicted learning, everything's going to be there, um, that a guy or a gal needs, you know, to get themselves going in the woods. And then we're going to refine that and add a lot more things over the summer into next year and also offer a lot of stuff for people to help them in their scouting in their off season. Nice. So I really see this as, you know, becoming like the one-stop shop for hunters so that, you know, if you're anything like me, I have like something like seven or eight apps on my phone right. that I used in the past, past to get everything nailed down for a hunt. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at that. 
I'm looking to make that like a, a thing of the past. Right. That'd be awesome, man. I want to talk to I want to be sensitive to your time. So I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I want to ask just a couple things. Cause I think, you know, when I look at the app, I have it up here, you know, the, I think people will be familiar with how to like read the forecast information, looking at like the weather that's, you know, kind of uh, predicted out over the course of, you know, five, six, seven days, whatever it ends up being. Um, but the deer movement, you know, we've talked about that a little bit, you know, cause you have, you know, a high activity, average activity. I'm just looking at, you know, and then a low activity I hear, I see here for Saturday for me, which sucks because, um, I'm going to hunt Saturday, <laughs> but, um, well, I should say just, I'll, I'll, I'll stop you there. Just so we've done some tweaks and changes to our model and also how we've bucketed the information low really isn't a good representation of the data. We're actually, um, we're actually, uh, before it releases on Wednesday, we've actually changed our buckets. So what we'll be talking about then is core movement mm. and then the amount of core movement. So core, you could define as a bucks <clears throat> where he spends the most of the daylight hours or a doe. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm coughing. Um, spends most of the daylight hours. Um, our model would have traditionally called it low movement in, in a normalized pattern. Mm -hmm. It's not true necessarily because there is there, there could be multiple instances of linear movement in a small area. Mm -hmm. And calling that low doesn't serve it, doesn't do it justice. Right. Does that make sense? Yep, no, that makes sense. So, so what that we will call that is core movement in a normalized pattern. And that'll help the, help the hunter understand, okay, I, I, I'm going hunting Saturday. I just need to know that I need to be focusing now on bedding areas right. or transition that's closer to bedding areas. Does that make sense? No, totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then high, high, a prediction on high would be like full range. In other words, I can expect during daylight hours to find this deer in transition, in feeding, or in their bedding area. Like they could be anywhere and everywhere across that spectrum. Right. Now that's so we are doing a couple changes, yep. tweaks there. That totally makes sense. And then you have your pattern, which is abnormal, very normal, or very abnormal, normal. And like the way I kind of understand that is, is that. Uh, the very abnormal pattern just means like they might be leaving and I'm just put it in layman's terms, the confines of maybe like their most secure areas, so, like a bedding area, like they might be moving. That's more likely to move outside of like their, um, their core safety area. Right. So it's like, I'm thinking more like rut activity where they're going to travel yeah. and travel outside yep. of like their normal parameters. Yep. And then what I see is normal doesn't mean that it's necessarily less movement per se. It just means they're going to follow probably more of that typical like bed to food pattern where you're going to find that yep. movement is going to exist more, more isolated in their core bedding area or in that in and around security cover, essentially. Right. Precisely, man. We got to bring you on because I get asked this question by our beta testers <clears throat> and I'm always explaining pattern to them <laughs> <laughs> and I'm never able to put it in, you know, succinctly, but yeah, you're, you said it exactly right. Um, you can expect your pattern to be very abnormal or abnormal at least during the rutting periods. Mm -hmm. When is your peak rut? Um, according to the outfitter, uh, for, your area? for our area yeah. or for this area is November 14th. Yeah. So you're looking at seven to 10 or 11 days after that. What are we at right now? The 23rd. 23rd. Yeah. So I would expect very abnormal to abnormal patterns mm -hmm. for your area because does are being pushed. Bucks are pushing. Mm -hmm. And nothing is right. A buck's bedding wherever he needs to bed to be down one of them does right now, right? Yep. 
I mean, he it might be at the tail end of this first peak of the rut. Sure. But they're still running activity and there's still bu- big bucks on their feet during the day being killed because they're trying to search out those last, the last of that first cadre of hot does. The last of them are just getting mated right now, right? Yep. So the, the smart old guys are still out there trying to get it done. And so, yeah, I would expect very abnormal. And then I would expect your pattern to reflect something along the lines of normal or, or at least it's distri- it'll be distributed as normal in the first week, <clears throat> maybe not even the first week of December, maybe second week of December, okay. you might seem be, be seeing more normal, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but we do have GPS data for like north of your area and southwest of your area. Yep. So it should be very accurate in there. Nice. And then the, uh, the rest of the information that's on here again, like I like the, uh, I like the Windrows, uh, uh, graphic. Um, if I'm reading this right, it's giving me the percentages of what that wind direction, the odds of that specific wind direction are, if I'm not mistaken, is that what it's doing? I'm seeing like a seven. The Windrows that you're looking at should be your last two weeks of wind. Last two weeks of wind data. Awesome. Yeah. And then there should be a value that shows you what percentage it is. Yep. Yep. So what, like, what's your predominant wind on there? What's the one with the largest? Uh, south, Southwest, which is a hundred percent. Yes. That's what I get. Yeah. A lot south, of. Southwest. And then it should assign a percentage saying that's the amount of time. So what we are, how we are changing that is there's going to, on further releases that'll hopefully come out before scouting season, mm-hmm. you'll be able to <clears throat> hit a drop down and you can say, all right, say you're going to Missouri. You can type in that zip code or that town name for that place in Missouri hit the windrows and then you can look at the last two weeks. You can look at the last 30 years. You can look at the last year, or you can look at the date time range that you normally go to Missouri year in and year out because it predicts year by year. Yeah. So in other words, in Missouri in November, I'm just spitballing. This isn't true. Uh, for the first two weeks of November, 61% of the time it's been a Northwest wind. Right. That is year by year. That's, that's, um, uh, consistent. Yeah. So that way, when you're going to do your scouting and say you want to go to Missouri this summer to do your scouting, you pull up the outfitter, you hit that in there and you say, Oh, here's the wind rose for the first week in November, which is when I go to Missouri. Right. I'm looking at that. And then what we're coming out with probably it, it's right now, Greg Litzinger and I and Garrett are field testing or looking at our wear feature you'll be able to overlay that with the wear feature. And then the wear feature is going to say, <clears throat> okay, based on that wind, here's where we see bedding and here's where mm. we see travel corridors yeah. on a physical map so that you line that all up and you, and now you're getting a look at, okay, now when I'm going to go to Missouri in July, I'm going to go scout the, the wind and bedding areas that are conducive with my wind at that time. It does you no good to scout your South wind in Missouri Right. right. So you got a south wind during the summer, yep. which most places do. So then you go and scout, you know, your leeward ridges, mm-hmm. leeward ridges and beds that are for a south wind. Right. It'll do you no good. Yeah, because you're now looking November. at the north side of the ridge, and whenever you come right. in, you're having right. north wind. They're exactly. better on the opposite side of the ridge. Yep. So. so what you'll be able to do temporally with the outfitter is look at that scenario and then go and do your scouting based on that, even though you might be looking at, you know, some pretty faint sign it's going to be the correct sign. So you, when you know either there's a scrape or an overhead licking branch or something like that, that's broken off. Those are still things you can find in July. Right. So then you're looking at the, the outfitters win and wear feature. And then you're looking at this and it's, you're helping, it's helping the hunter again, put that puzzle together. Right. Yeah. I love that, man. Cause I, I, I do that. And like you were saying earlier, it's like, I'm having to look at multiple things to try to figure that out. 
you know, and look at historical wind data. And I'm looking for the past couple of years to understand, well, what's the predominant wind whenever I get here, when I go to scout, what's it going to be whenever I'm hunting. And it'd be nice to be able to know, and I can just look back historically. Not only that, the one thing I really like about this is whenever I look at, you know, so, you know, hunters oftentimes will burn out spots, right? That's not, you know, that's not new news, right. And hunting it, you know, on the wrong, on the wrong wind or whatever. And maybe it's because, you know, they, they, they're excited to get out to it, or they're just not sure how many, if it's a very specific wind they need to hunt it, they might go hunt it because they don't know when they're going to get that next wind. Right. And so what this does for me actually is when I look at it, I go, all right, well, I know, you know, I need, I'm just going to pick another one. I'm going to need a, a West Southwest wind, for example. Right. And for me, I get that about 3% of the time. Right. And so yep. if I have a spot that I know that I need a west southwest or a west south south a west south south wind if I get one I better be in that spot because yep. the chances of me getting another one in the next 8 weeks are pretty low. Yep. You know what I and mean? That, and that and you just spoke to another piece that we're going to be bringing out is you're going to be able to set the outfitter up to alert you of oh, when favorable when favorable conditions are presenting themselves for specific stands. Yeah or for specific areas that you've highlighted. And then also, you know, there'll be a search function so that you can do something like I do. What, what I'm doing right now is for public land, the public land near where I live will have one prediction. And then the public land down South where I commute to, to hunt, like some of these places I have to drive like two hours. So I'm like mm-hmm. leaving the house at two 30 in the morning to go and get a morning sit, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and climb in there. So what I can do is I can, um, set these areas up and then I can also search for all right outfitter where is the nearest high movement prediction coupled with a peak rut right so so that might say it'll say to me okay your nearest one is 120 miles away right so so I need to go to this public forest up here because that one great thing about being a public hunter the one thing I love about being a public hunter is I'm not constrained by where I can go and what I can do yep. and if I want to hunt the rut I'll continue. I can continue to hunt the rut through January exactly. with the outfitter. Yep. You can know where the rut is, no matter where, no matter where it's happening. You can say, all right, outfitter, I want rut and highest movement. You know, I, I've got a free week in the um, beginning of January, and I didn't think I was going to have it. I want a rut and I want high movement. And it'll tell you, hey, here's where you need to be in Mississippi. Right. Peak rut is one to seven. Here's the state forests. Here are the days that we say there's going to be high movement. Yeah. You know, no more excuses. That's awesome, man. I love going get after it. Go to Alabama, catch all five ruts. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, yeah. What yeah, is it's Alabama, it's Florida, it's South Carolina, it's Texas. I believe you can travel anywhere in those states and get a rut. You know, Wait. starting in late October right. until January. Right, exactly, exactly. Beautiful. Well, man, I've taken up enough of your time this evening. Uh, I appreciate you coming on here and doing this, man. This stuff, I get all geeked out over it, man. Anything that's going to help me be a better deer hunter, you know, I'm all about it. And that's kind of what we do here. It's just trying to help people that are listening be better deer hunters and get get more opportunities at the type of experiences they want to have. So I appreciate you coming on. But before I let you go... Give us that information one more time where people can find out about this, get the app and experience it. And then there's also that 25% discount with the promo code truth. If I'm not, not mistaken, that you're, yep. that you're kindly giving yep. the folks. So be sure to take advantage of that. So give us, you know, where they can find out more about you, where they can find out more about Spartan Forge. Yep. 
So www.spartan4ji, and then all of our social media is linked on there. Um, I would say we're most active on Instagram and Facebook. So please, you know, if your listeners uh, can come and follow us on Instagram, we will be pushing stuff out there and, and on Facebook simultaneously on our updates. And then if any of your listeners are, you know, uh, you know, big time uh, hunters and they and they are serious about the time in the woods, there's other things we can talk another time. We're introducing a diary function mm-hmm. that's going to have a lot of stuff built into it. Awesome. Uh, that's going to help people, I think, a lot. And there's some game-changing stuff we're doing in there. So if you've got people who are serious hunters and they want to be part of our beta crew of people who are just getting, they'll get a free version of the app, but it'll also come with all of our experimental stuff. Uh, one of those things was Pattern, which we talked about. Mm-hmm. That's going to be part of this release, but that was something that we were looking at as experimental until it got good enough. There's a ton of other experimental stuff like that wear feature and the nearest rut feature and the nearest high prediction feature that those people can get a hold of. So if they want to contact us, spartanforge.ai, follow us on Instagram or Facebook. And then there's a link on our website to our support function. If they email us there, that's where we're taking, you know, we've got a pretty robust crew right now. I think of about 30 testers. Mm -hmm. We're always looking for more, um, especially from the Southeast and the Northeast. So uh, if, if people are interested, they can come there and, you know, we hope to see them downloading the app on Wednesday and, uh, and getting ready for the full production release next year. Awesome, man. Well, it, when, as new as new things come up, man, you got a home here. You can always come back. You just let me know, and we'll uh, we'll talk more deer hunting and nerd out together. I appreciate you coming on again. Thank you for your service, and congratulations your on your on your retirement. Um, I look forward to seeing what you get into, man. All right, thanks a lot. Have a good one. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tether, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, We'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.